This is episode 290 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by our patrons. You can become a patron of the show to access over 150 additional episodes of our show not available on public listening platforms, as well as have the opportunity to contribute directly to programming, including submitting questions you'd like to see asked on the air to our guests. Sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. Hi, I'm Catherine Edwards, and I'm a professor of history at the University of South Carolina and the author of several books on werewolves, ghosts, devils, and all sorts of other supernatural beings in uh, pre-modern Europe. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. Back then, they really didn't have a lot of utensils at the table. You would share a cup between two people. You would share a bowl of stew between two people. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. When we sit down to a formal dinner here in the United States, there are manners you're expected to follow, like sit up straight, push your chair in, place your napkin in your lap. All of these small niceties are collectively called dining etiquette, and they represent the rules for how we're to operate socially when eating a meal. Which begs the question, what about Shakespeare? When the bard sat down to a meal with his friends, perhaps at the Mermaid Tavern or even at a state dinner somewhere like Whitehall Palace, were there conventional behaviors he was supposed to follow when eating at a table for a formal dinner? To find out more, we're talking today with Mara Graber, director and founder of the RSVP Institute for Etiquette. She's here with us this week to share about the history of dining and proper behavior at the table for 16th century in what is that Shakespeare Life's first two-part episode series. This week is on table manners, and next week we'll be talking with her about napkins. So make sure you come back next week to learn about napkins for Shakespeare's lifetime and especially whether or not it was okay to fold your napkin and put it in your lap. Maura J. Graber is an author and a consultant and the site creator and editor for the Etiquipedia Etiquette Encyclopedia, a free online resource for all things etiquette and etiquette history. Maura has been teaching etiquette since 1990 and runs the RSVP Institute of Etiquette at the historic Graber Olive House in Ontario, California. Her books, Reaching for the Right Fork and What Have We Here, are bestsellers among those who study etiquette, antiques for the table, and dining history. Most recently, she has worked as a historical etiquette consultant for Julian Fellow's HBO show, The Gilded Age. Hello, Maura. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life. Thank you very much. How are you doing today? 
I am doing really well. I'm excited to take an in-depth look here at napkins from Shakespeare's lifetime because I know there's just a wide history about them. And I'd like to start by asking you about where napkins came from and how were they being used in Shakespeare's lifetime? Well, they came originally from a dough that was given to Romans in the Roman Empire, and they would use it to naturally wipe their fingers off. There were larger versions and there were smaller versions, smaller versions for for maybe wiping their brow if they had too much to eat, too much to drink, and they were perspiring a bit or getting a little bit messy from above the lips. But it was it was a that they were using. They were also using this dough to at, at one point later on in the Roman era, much larger to use as a doggy bag. That led into cloth napkins being used and cloth napkins, what we think of now today. In several of Shakespeare's plays, napkins are referred to as being covered in blood or used for cleaning blood or sometimes even wiping away sweat. Were napkins typically used at a table for eating food the way we think of them today? Or was the word napkin or the concept of a napkin used for personal hygiene in a variety of ways for Shakespeare's lifetime? It was used in a variety of ways. When you use the word napkin, you're really encompassing all napery. Napery meant anything, any type of cloth in general, and especially cloth for the table. So any type of napkin that you would use, they had different sizes, like they they had handkerchief size, that sort of thing. But most were rectangular in the early 1500s, they were rectangular shaped. They had a fringe around them. By the early 1500s, they were sort of dropping the fringe and keeping them just rectangular. But these were, in many cases, some beautifully done pieces. They would still be using the word, though, napkin for any type of linen, any any piece of linen. So something that you would use to wipe your brow would be any type of cloth that you would find that would be suitable for this. So depending on your level in life, your station, where you fit into that class system, that would denote the type of fabric that you were allowed to use, especially with sumptuary laws that Queen Elizabeth brought in. You weren't allowed to use fancy laces. You weren't allowed to use silks. You weren't allowed to use all these fine fabrics, unless you were at the very top level of society. And then as you went down lower and lower and lower, you had rougher and coarser pieces of cloth. So any type of old cloth would do as something for wiping your brow. You wouldn't necessarily use a table napkin. Now, when napkins were used at the table, was it customary to have them with every meal? Yes, you would have them at every meal, certainly. In the wealthier households, you would have one for for every course, certainly by the 1600s. But throughout the 1500s, you saw this becoming more and more of a thing that would be done where you would have a, rather than a napkin for the whole meal or using the tablecloth throughout the meal, you would have a napkin for every course that was served. And then at the end of the meal, those with the largest piles of napkins piled up 
that meant their dinner party was a huge success. Just to give you an example of this, the Duke of Northrop, when he died, had eight tablecloths. Now, that would be a, a lot for someone of little means. If you had one nice tablecloth, that would be something. But he had 245 napkins. If that gives you an idea, the ratio that we're talking about. So if you had a five-course dinner for 12 people, that's only 60 napkins. Uh, you could have four or five more dinner parties there. They were very valuable. So for blood or something like that, we're talking about what we would term rags nowadays. You would use um, an old beat up cloth, maybe an old napkin that couldn't be washed any more times. It was getting rather threadbare. So that's what you would use instead of a napkin. I know cutlery was a very personal item with each dinner patron typically bringing their own set of cutlery to the table. But were napkins similarly this kind of personal item that you would not only carry with you, but would you bring it to the table as someone being a, a guest at the dinner? Or was it expected that the host would provide the napkins to their patrons? Oddly, they weren't carried with you. And I would think they would be a status symbol like the spoon was. In the 1500s, spoons were a big deal. You would bring a spoon. If you and your wife went somewhere for dinner, you brought your own spoon between the two of you because you would share that spoon. And uh, later on in the uh, early 1600s, when Charles II came in to rule, he uh, had discovered treffid spoons over in France. And it started a whole craze where people over in England, this particular pattern or style of spoon, suddenly people in England who had silver spoons, because they were of a certain level in society, again, they were taking their spoons into their silversmith and having their silversmith rework them into what was termed the French fashion and turn them into treffid spoons. They would melt them down and and make a new one or do something with the handle to try to turn it into a treffid style handle to match that French fashion. So I'm actually surprised in the research I've done with regard to napkins in this period they weren't carrying their napkins from place to place because if you did have money, you would have these fabulous designs woven into your napkins. I think it's interesting in Shakespeare's plays, in Pericles, as well as in Romeo and Juliet, there are stage directions that specifically indicate servants should carry in the napkins when they attend to the guests, which I think is just a lovely little time capsule of what it would have been like to attend one of those dinners in Shakespeare's lifetime where you would expect the servants to bring in the napkins to the dinner table there, as opposed to, you know, today where we think about, you know, either you've got a buffet and you're picking up the napkin at the end of the table or you're yes. having them folded there at your at your place. I, I love that we have that little slice of how they're handled in Shakespeare's stage, stage direction. So thank you for that, Shakespeare. I'm thanking him too. <laughs> Well, I put back here for good luck. I don't know if you can see this. It's the complete works of Shakespeare. I thought, you know what? I'm going to put this behind. Oh, yay. <laughs> it's actually not the complete works of Shakespeare. It is, in actuality, a hidden ladies' travel. Oh, day. how cool. I thought, you know what? 
this deserves a place. I'm not that familiar with Shakespeare, though I, I actually did a lot of reading this morning. And one of the texts that I was reading talked about how he has in one of his plays that a nobleman was, well, he was realized, it was realized he was a nobleman, I should say, in the play. And I try to remember which one that because he pulled out a toothpick to use. And this was actually frowned upon by people who wrote table manners. Oh, fantastic. Now, see, I don't know where the toothpick is referred to in Shakespeare's plays either, but I'm going to go find it and put the the answer for that in the show notes for today's episode. As you're talking about napkins and how they got to the table, I wonder if there was anything such as a napkin fold for the 16th and 17th century. Would there have been folding napkins into certain shapes decoratively in Shakespeare's lifetime? Napkins were folded. The real popular shapes were animals. The second most popular were ships. They called them folded. They also called them pinched napkins. If you if you ever do any reading in old text, they'll refer to pinched napkins, and that means they were folded. They were very popular. These came from Italy, and they made their way across the pond to England. People were very fascinated with them. Peeps wrote about them. He, in fact, he hired someone to teach his wife. He had had someone come in to do napkin folding for a dinner that they were having the next night. That would be a lot of napkins. And due to the size of the napkins of that era, the napkins could be up to 45 inches by 35 inches. They were generally rectangular, not square. And I can't imagine how big these napkin folds would be or how intricate or elaborate there would be. There were books on them. I've yet to see other than just copies of pages from those books on early napkin folding. I can only imagine they would have been elaborate because yes, you're talking, you know, multiple feet by multiple feet in in size, almost the size of a tablecloth for a small table. It's it was really substantial amount of material. So I can imagine if they were taking the time to fold that into things like ships, it was pretty detailed work. Now, many Americans will be sitting down to dinner for Thanksgiving next week, and more than a few will be told to put their napkin in their laps when sitting down at the table. And it made me wonder whether there were similar rules about how a napkin was to be placed or an etiquette around how to use a napkin at the table for Shakespeare's lifetime. There were, but those changed throughout his lifetime. He was born in the 1500s, died in the 1600s, early 1600s. Those rules changed because this was when napkin sizes were changing a bit. They started out, as I said, they were, you know, as they entered into the 1500s, napkins had been fringed. They were of a coarser cloth. They they became more refined by the 1500s. And throughout the 1500s, again, even more refined throughout that era. By the 1600s, people in Europe were adopting forks. So different rules were being adopted throughout Europe. And they would filter uh, their way through to England. But you had, you know, where you had these large, really large napkins, a lot of people would wear them either over their arm or even over their shoulders in some cases. Depending on what social class you were in, some social classes were still using the tablecloth and being told not to. So it's like 
telling your kids not to use their, you know, the sleeve of, of their shirt or, or what have you to wipe their mouth. They're being told, don't, you know, stop using the tablecloth, use your napkin for that. Um, I've actually had kids say this to me today in etiquette classes, but I don't want to get it dirty. And they'll lift this very pristine looking napkin up. They'd rather get their shirts dirty than get the napkin itself. And I've had, actually, I've had adult women ask me this. How do you keep people from getting your really nice linen napkins so dirty? I can imagine back then if you had, you know, been in that class where you could buy damask linen, where you, you could afford it and you were allowed to have it with sumptuary laws that you wouldn't want them ruined. You wouldn't want them damaged. You wouldn't want people to use them. As my mother used to say, why don't you just put them on display? I don't know how a hostess would handle that, but I imagine they were a lot like we are today, where we don't want to see our nice things that we bring out for company get ruined. So there were rules throughout that time period and later on where, you know, you had them in your lap, you had them draped over your shoulder, had them draped over your arm, or you later on had them tucked into your shirt, or some of them were made with buttonholes. But the people that were writing about etiquette at the time were saying, you look like you're ready to just make a pig of yourself, basically. Don't attach that to your front. And when you sit down to the table, it just appears like you're just ready to gorge yourself. Well, I know we would love to explore more about the history of napkins in Shakespeare's lifetime and get a look at some of these designs and sizes that you've been telling us about today. So I want to ask from your experience, what are some of your favorite books or resources you can point us towards? If we're new to this part of history, where should we start to explore further? I would say anything written by Margaret Visser. She was an expert on on all of this. I absolutely loved her book. The Rituals of Dinner is her well most well-known by people. She wrote several books, actually. But The Rituals of Dinner is an excellent book by Margaret Visser for reading any of this type of thing. But unless you're a sociologist at heart, you may not enjoy it that much. It starts out talking about cannibalism and the history of cannibalism, so it makes it kind of difficult. Anything by Helen Sprackling on a more modern take. Her books were more mid-century modern. 1950s, 1960s, but she gives a good background, especially comparing British table to American table. Anything by Easterling, she wrote some excellent books and she wrote a few books on the table where she encompassed everything from textiles to silver. Those are excellent resources, and we will link to these in the show notes for today's episode. And yes, with Margaret Visser, skip past the cannibalism, maybe, and dive into the stuff that's later. But it does provide some great starting points. I appreciate you sharing those. So go to the show notes for the direct links so you can go directly to these resources. Now, Mara, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Probably something by Jane Austen, something annotated. Those take me forever to get through. I've only been able to actually get through one but I'm so busy looking up all of the different words and terminology that she's using 
to give you an example, I did a whole Regency vocabulary, a three-part Regency vocabulary, just from reading one of her books. I went through several others looking for things. One of the things I found really interesting was the term senite. We are familiar with the term fortnight, meaning two weeks. Senite was one week. That was seven nights broken down S-E apostrophe E-N-I-G-H-T or N-I-T-E. I think that's an excellent selection for sure. So what are you working on now that you're excited about? I'm trying to finish up my next book. It's a sequel to my book, What Have We Here? This third book, What Have We Here? It'll be yesteryear, more What Have We Here? It's going even further back in time a little bit. And uh, we're still focusing a lot on dining, but also personal items that men and women used frequently in the Georgian era, the Regency era, Edwardian, so on. We start out in this book with the nipple shield. And it's a very rare piece. It's got a crest on it. It's from Scotland. And it was used for a family's wet nurse. Like I said, it's an extremely rare piece of silver that you just never see. That sounds like an exciting project. We'll look forward to seeing that when it gets published. Thank you, Mara Graber, for being here today and taking us through the history of napkins from Shakespeare's lifetime. This was a neat journey into the past, and I thank you for sharing it with us. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. If you like the show today, be sure to let us know about it. Drop us a rating and a review on the platform you're listening from today. Every rating and review that you offer the show on the platform you're listening from helps other Shakespeareans find our show. And as you know, we love connecting with people who love Shakespeare history as much as we do. So please leave us a rating and help us find more Shakespeare friends. If you'd like to see visual history that goes along with the topic we're talking about today, including some portraits of dinner tables and some paintings and archival information about the dining history that Maura is sharing with us today, then check out the show notes for today's episode. Inside the show notes, you'll be able to find direct links to the resources Maura recommends, more about our guest, and places you can follow their work. Find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 290. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP290. If you'd like to go even deeper to the history of the life and times of William Shakespeare, then consider becoming a patron. Patrons of our show get access to over 150 additional episodes that aren't available on public listening platforms, as well as behind-the-scenes extras, insider history details, sneak peeks at upcoming guests, and the opportunity to submit their own questions to upcoming interviews, where what you want to know gets asked live during a show. There's also activity kits and classroom resources for educators, and there's recipe games and crafts straight from the life of William Shakespeare. Inside our patrons area is a great place to cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Join us today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare Life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com.
Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.